and kids. So kindergarten through second grade, you're dismissed. Our kindergartners through second grade, they go to the library for their story time and couple other housekeeping items as they go. Parents, we're uh, for our discipleship hour. So we have our worship hour and our discipleship hour. We have a couple classes going. So the, the Proverbs class has moved in, into James. So they're in James. And then we have the deep dive into Exodus. So James, so you can uh, choose one of those classes. Our kids, we're going to start out on the playground. So that's where we're going to start. And then we're going to go into the bus loop. But if it's raining when we leave the building, everybody's just going to start out uh, on the bus loop, and we have a lot going on. So if you want to, if you ha if you don't get our weekly email, we send out an email now on Wednesdays that have all the announcements of the things coming up, like Table for Ten coming up, which is a, a cookout at our house, so you can come, and that's the first step in membership or getting to know our church and helping us get to know you. Got the Daddy Daughter Dance coming up, so you don't want to miss that if that's you're in that demographic, and all that information's on that weekly email. So you fill out a connect card and you can get on that loop. But for our sermon series up until Easter, we are going through and doing a deep dive into the Ten Commandments, and we're on commandment number three. So commandment number three is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And the way I want to unpack this for us this morning is just kind of three words. We're going to think, all right, learn, love, live. So what, does this, what, what do we learn about who God is from this command? What is it meant to do to our hearts? Because it's not just meant to inform us, it's meant to shape uh, what we love. So learn something, love something, and then, and then live. How does it shape our life? So simple uh, outline, learn, love, live. And the first thing as we look at the command, we're supposed to learn something. What does it teach us about who God is and how we're supposed to follow him. In some sense, the commandment is pretty simple. Uh, the main point of the command is that the name of the Lord is holy, and our usage of that name should reflect that. It's a command about God defending the honor of his name. But when most of us think about the third commandment, you know, don't take the, 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 the Lord's name in vain, we think about how we, we speak, the things we say, Maybe you think about cursing or cussing or saying the Lord's name when you don't really need it or mean it. But what's interesting about the command is it is, it is talking about the, how you use your mouth, uh, how you speak. But there's a Hebrew word for take or talk, and it doesn't use that word. It uses the word for take. So we're going to say there's so much more than just the words we use implied here. All right, so the context, first five commands are about our relationship with the Lord. Next five are about our relationships with one another. The fifth being that transition. It's all about relationships. One of the key themes of the Bible is that the quality of your life is dependent on the quality of your relationships. And one of the things that sin did is sin, when it entered into the world, it broke our relationships with God, with ourselves, and with others. And the Ten Commandments are the, the seedbed for how these relationships how you can love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, strength, and love your neighbor, how it can be restored. And so we're in the context of how can our relationship with God be restored. And the first commandment's all about the object of our worship, who we worship. The second commandment's about the, the how of worship. And this is really about the attitude of worship. We're to honor the name, not take it in vain, not treat it as, as light. The goal is to hallow, to lift up his name. 
And as we kind of dive into this, there's three things we learn. We learn about uh, his control, uh, his character, and his closeness. But if you even think about just your name, you know, one of the unique things about names is you don't get to name yourself. You know, your, your full name was given to you by your parents. And in one sense, that's kind of the first act of God-given parental authority is, is naming the child. You know, I've shared before and kind of teased when I first met Cynthia, she had in her purse a list of top 10 favorite baby boy names on the front, top 10 favorite baby girl names on the back. So I knew that naming is something significant to her as we progress in our relationship. I just asked for veto power, but turned over the, uh, the reins of the naming, but naming. But then you even think about the, the, the nicknames. In many ways, you don't get to give yourself a nickname. Be very leery if you meet anyone who's given themselves a nickname. Normally, it's kind of self-aggrandizing. Like Alexander was the one who called himself Alexander the Great. So if anybody nicknames himself the Great, you know, I'd, we might have some ego issues here. You know, Cynthia, we met after I was in, had already gone through college, and so when she was, uh, <laughs> I had to kind of shield her from my college friends, and we never used proper names for one another. We all had nicknames. And I was actually going to share the different nicknames, but then I thought better of it because most of them aren't the kind of names you'd want to share. For example, my nickname was Fatso. <laughs> and that was one of the nicer of the names. <laughs> and then she'd say, oh, well, like, why do you call him that? I said, well... Have you met him? <laughs> Once you meet him, it'll, it'll be obvious. And so those nicknames, they often tell you something about the person. But in contrast here, what God is saying is like no one gets to name God. God defines who God is. God gets to name himself and tell us who he is. And we learn some certain things from his name. One, we learn about control. He's the one who is in control, and that's similar to what I was just mentioning about the parents. They get to name the child. In the ancient world, the conqueror got to name the city. God gets to name the people. In Eastern societies then and many now, you don't call someone by their, their first name. You use respectful titles, similar to things like the military, where there's certain titles that should be used. And one of the glories of this section of the Bible and the gospel is that God shares his name with us. And we've seen that's one of the great themes in Exodus that you see that God's name, it defines his self-existence and his self-sufficiency and that his supreme uh, sovereignty. And as Exodus unfolds it, you get to see his uh, saving power on display and the development and the display of his great name is one of the great themes of this book. But he's in control of the name, but the name also, the different names, illustrate the character. They're meant to teach us something about who he is. So Yahweh, I am who I am, is the great personal covenant name. That's like the first name. 
But then all the other names that are so prominent throughout the Old Testament tell us something about who he is, like El Shaddai, his might and his power, or El Elyon, his transcendence, and is connected to his character. The name tells us something about who he is and what he does. And the name, the reason why you have to honor it is because it's, it's, it's intimately connected to the reputation. It's inseparable from the person. It, not only tells us who they are, but it tells us what they're, they're like. It's their identity. It's who they are. And then closeness in this world. The name represented proximity. You know, this is a world where in order to say or hear your name, you have to be within, in essence, the sound of the voice. So if you know the name or can say the name or hear the name, it means they're also close to you. It's it's personal presence, meaning they're nearby, they can locate them. So it's, it's, it's meant to teach us uh, something about who he is and that he's close and that he's in control. And each command has both a negative, don't do this, and then a corresponding positive, this is what you should be doing. And this, the negative is it's forbidding the misuse of God's name. Now it's not forbidding the use of his name. And you know some of the stories about uh, the, what developed throughout history as Orthodox Jews would be very concerned about safeguarding the name, so the great lengths they would go to not to dishonor the name. But it has to be remembered that all throughout the Old Testament, what God is, is forbidding is not the use of his name, but it's misuse. Because we're told over and over, call upon the name of the Lord. That's what prayer is. We're, we're, we're told to address him personally. I've been reading through a Bible translation that everywhere it says, you know, the Lord, it translates as Yahweh. And I've just been amazed at how often, especially in the Psalms, where we call out the Lord's personal personal name. So God is forbidding the misuse of it, forbidding using it in vain. That means to treat it as empty or meaningless or hollow, or hollow, uh, vapid. You know, same word, you know, vanity of vanities. It's like a breath. You're, you're treating something that should have weight to it, substance, as if it's just vapid, as if it's meaningless. And you trace it through at least the Old Testament. There's three different ways that people would misuse the Lord's name. The first one was they'd misuse it in sorcery. So like this is magical incantations where you would manipulate the name for your own purposes. So the Egyptians were masters at this. They specialized in this kind of thing where you would kind of utilize God's name, the name of the gods, to bring about some kind of magical thing. And do you know like the origins of the phrase hocus pocus? You know where that comes from? It's Latin, hoc es corpus. This is my body. So it comes from the medieval Latin mass where the, the, the belief was that when you took the Lord's Supper and you lifted up the elements and you said hoc es corpus, that it, it became the actual body and blood of, of Jesus. And so hocus pocus is kind of using the name of the Lord kind of in a magical incantation type way. So sorcery was one way in the Old Testament that the name was misused. Another way was false prophecy. So that was, this was really key all throughout Jeremiah where people would say, thus saith the Lord, and then they would say whatever they wanted like the king to do. And so they would, we, we kind of use the phrase now, like we call it the, the cliche is pull out the God card 
where God pulls out, you know, oh, the Lord has told me I need to do X, you know. The Lord has told me that we need to move and plant a church in Hawaii, something like that. You kind of, really? Maybe, maybe, but maybe you just want to go. Um, and if you want to go, go. So, you, you know, use that. That's how it was used in the Old Testament. Uh, Thus saith the Lord, and then use it for false prophecy. And the other one was swearing false oaths. So say, as the Lord lives, and then would use the Lord's name to try and uh, manipulate and confirm something that they knew wasn't true. So you hear that where some people will say, well, I swear to God. You know, what are they actually doing? They're trying to um, give a certain weight to what they're saying to, to affect how you receive the information. And in all three cases there in the Old Testament, God's sacred name is being misused. But how it's being misused is because you're using it to try and manipulate others to get whatever it is you want, either for them or from them. So it's manipulating, using the name to manipulate others. So that's God's negative command, is forbidding the misuse of his name. So we're supposed to learn something. This is what we don't do with the name, but what is the positive command? What are we supposed to do? Because part of the point of the name is to capture our heart. This command is meant to capture your heart, and the, the goal of the command is just not, don't say these things, but it's to treasure this person. And so his name is wonderful. And so we're supposed to, to hallow it, to exalt it, to lift it up. It's our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're supposed to set it aside to be praised and honored and blessed and celebrated and adored. And we're supposed to use the name to call upon the name when we're in trouble. Like God gives us his name because he wants us to have a personal relationship to, with him so we can call upon him when we are in trouble. And so there's two dynamics here is that inherent in the name is both his power and his promises. And as we sung, we're given the name of Jesus that has the power and then the fulfillment of all God's promises. You know, it's an interesting thing. I've been thinking about, all right, why do we have the knee-jerk reaction to call on God when things don't go our way. So we talk about the origin of like hocus pocus, hawk s corpus. You know the, or the origin of golly and geez? Because people are saying something happens, and they, instead of saying, oh God, they say, oh golly, or geez, you know, geez Louise, I don't know where Louise came in, <laughs> but geez is trying not to say Jesus. So like, why, why is that a default? And on the one hand, you know, it kind of just hermeneutical principle is that etymology doesn't mean definition. So when you're saying, geez, are you really taking the Lord's name in vain because that's the origin of the word? Well, maybe not. I mean, we, we need something we can say when you step on a Lego at three in the morning <laughs> or whatever else might invoke that from you. But what can those words be? And that's what they, they come from. But why, why is God and Jesus the names that we just almost intuitively go to? I was thinking about this. One of the, one of the closest I've ever come to death uh, happened about 20 years ago. And uh, 
the kind of where we were in life. I had moved down in 2004 uh, out of Atlanta to start seminary. Cynthia and I uh, met in 2004. Uh, you've heard, some of you heard me tell the story. For me, it was love at first sight. For her, it took a little bit longer. <laughs> kind of had to wear her down, so probably similar to Steve and, and, and Debbie's story. But after about a year and a half, maybe two years later, I would finally gotten her to admit that we actually were dating. And I had gone home to Atlanta for Christmas break and then was driving back to Orlando to start the spring semester uh, at the end of the Christmas break. And I had never entered into a new semester of school as eager and energetic as that one. And was driving down, if you know, the road from Atlanta to Orlando, Highway 75. They've been doing road work on that for 188 years. <laughs> and still have not made much progress. And I'm just bebopping along, just rolling, just, just on cloud nine, driving probably way too fast, listening to the music way too loud. I can actually still remember, my, my hands are starting to shake, I can still remember the song I was listening to as I come up over this little bitty hill and look up and all I see are brake lights. And I didn't know this, but just down the road, a log truck had lost part of the road, and there was the beginning of about a 48-car pileup. And I locked my brakes down, and... <laughs> and in that moment, I definitely... The first thing I said probably broke the third commandment. <laughs> but then the second thing, there was only... There was one name at that moment that I called out to in that moment for help. And do you know whose name? It was the instant reaction, oh, God, help me. And at that moment, you know, at that time, uh, Barack Obama had just burst onto the political scene, and his name was all in the news, but that's not the name I thought of to cry out for help. In a moment, that was the name. It wasn't even Mama, even though Mama was kind of the second thing. As soon as, as, soon as it happened, the first phone call, call Mom, I'm okay. Now put Dad on the phone. I need to know what to do. And so who's it's almost like an instinctive reaction when your life flashes before your eyes, when things spiral out of control, when you enter into a situation and you say, why is it this is the name we cry to? Because every human heart knows we've been wired to call out to this name. And one of the reasons when you just kind of casually throw out like, OMG, you're actually, you're, you're trivializing one of the most precious gifts that God has given to us. Something I've been thinking about, and it's kind of my, my thesis, you can think about this. I don't know about this, but I, I just wonder if every time a non-Christian curses, they're proving deep down there really is a God. Because that we were made in his image, and we can't wipe it away, and we, even though we may fight against it, that we just instinctively turn to this name. Deep down we know, because of the power in the name. And all the promises that are attached are fulfilled in the name. There's no, under, no other name under heaven and earth which we be, be saved. And you run through the theme of Acts. One of the great themes is that this power is in the name and the promises connected to it. But, but there can be kind of devastating things can happen when we try and manipulate it and misuse it. Each week looking for different stories to illustrate this. And the story really quickly comes from Acts 19. So kids, especially third through fifth grade, we're gonna, I'm going to ask you some questions about this story. So you listen, but I picked this one out thinking about you boys. But this is the sons of Sceva, and Paul is in Ephesus. And it says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. 
so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And then there were some itinerant Jewish exorcists who undertook, and what did they want to do? They saw the power, and they thought, oh, wow, this is amazing. And this also would be a gravy train ticket to get really rich in the first century. So what do they want to do? They, they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord. See, now they see the power. They want, it. they want to be able to manipulate and use the name of the Lord for their own good. The name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And they would say, I adjure you by this name Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And the seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirits leaped on them and mastered them all, beat them up and overpowered them. And so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. But the name of the Lord became known throughout the whole region. So they're trying to use and manipulate the name for their own good and their own power. And there's, there's, there is power here, but it's not the kind of power that you can manipulate for your own uh, advancement, in essence. So we're supposed to love the name. There's power. We're supposed to pray in the name. But then how is it meant to shape your life? We're meant to take it. See, it's not just say the name. It's you don't take it. And that word means to, to carry it, to bear it. It's very similar to the high priest when he would enter into the, the Holy of the Holies. He'd have each of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed on his chest. And he would take the names of the people into the presence of God. And the way we honor the name is not just how we speak, but we have actually taken the name upon ourselves. You know, when you enter in the church and you're baptized, the name of the triune God is now placed on you. And everywhere you go, you are a bearer of that name. And it's interesting to think about. I was thinking about the trajectory of Israel's history. And I wonder if you can't tell part of the story through these first three commandments. Because it seems like once they entered into the promised land in the time of the judges, the great temptation was commandment one, not to worship the false gods of the land. And then as they developed the monarchy, the great temptation was not to create idols like the golden calf that would create over and over and put them up in the high places. This is the problem with all the kings. They go and they set up these shrines to worship these idols in the high places. And then after the exile, as they get sent out into the world and into the nations, the great challenge is that God says, you are not honoring my name. My name is being profaned among the Gentiles because of how you're living. And so they're meant to bear the name wherever they go. So how do you bear this name? Two things to think about. The way you use your words and your, your wants, your desires. So on the surface, this is about, you know, not swearing. You know, it's interesting. Even the word to swear means to give an oath. Even the word cuss, cuss comes from curse. And in the ancient world, the idea is that there was power used for your words, and you could use them either to bless or curse. And so, for example, if when I was walking up here to preach and I tripped and fell, I, you know, now I would just be embarrassed and try and hide under the pulpit. But in the ancient world, I would look around assuming that one of you had put a curse on the floor and were cursing me. 
So he used the words to try and, and to place a, a, a curse. But if you think about, you know, what you're actually doing when you do that, in many ways, whether you know it or not, you're setting yourself up as if you're God. You're saying, I have the right to now call down divine judgment on this thing. So I am going to call down divine judgment on this Lego or whoever left the Lego here. You're calling down. And see, I think every time we do this, we're proving whether we mean to or not that there really is a God and we were made in his image and we can't wipe it away. We can only fight against it. You're calling down divine damnation on something that is frustrating you. So one of the questions we have is, all right, how can we kind of remind ourselves and others to watch out for this kind of thing. You know, one of the sad things about our current cultural context is we just live in a vulgar age. So how can you be, a, be salt and light in a vulgar age? Maybe it's just changing the verbal temperature of places you enter. I wrestle with this a lot whenever uh, this has been a running career-long problem whenever I go play golf. So I love to go play golf. I love to go by myself, but often you can't play by yourself, so I'll go alone, and in inevitably, I'll get paired up with people. And whenever I get paired up with people, I'm always waiting for that moment when they say, what do you do? So, for example, a couple months ago, I was at St. Cloud, got paired up with a very colorful ex-Marine who was there and just energetic and happy to be outside and was using all types of just colorful language. And I kept thinking, oh, man, it's coming. It's coming. And to, maybe to his credit, it took a while to get around to what do you do. Most people, it comes by hole one or two. We were at least by hole eight. He said, so what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh. And then he, he crossed himself and started apologizing to his dead mother and said, oh, mama mia, I'm so sorry. I've been sitting here. Oh, she'd be so ashamed of me using this language in front of the priest. I didn't even know priests play golf. Are you allowed to play golf? And I'm like, well, not, I mean, I'm married. I'm kind of maybe not like the priest you grew up. But it, <laughs> so how, how do you just kind of change the temperature of the conversations around you? I thought about, I had heard one of my pastor friends had joked around with some of the guys. He says, well, maybe you ought to think about going into the ministry because in one sentence, you've got God, damnation, hell, and Jesus all in the same sentence. And I like, I can't do that in one sermon. So that's pretty, <laughs> that's impressive. So maybe you're the wrong, wrong career. But you think about it, it is about your words. How do you use words that not only honor God, honor his creatures, honor one another, but really a more serious way that you violate this command is you, you, you use God to advance your own agenda and your own purposes. You know, Thomas Watson's brilliant exposition, a Puritan exposition of the Ten Commandments, said that one of the deepest ways we violate this commandment is we misrepresent the scriptures for our own purposes. Or Stephen Carter has a great book called Taking God's Name in Vain. And he wrote it in 1996. And it's a book about the way both uh, political parties will manipulate God's name so God becomes a party mascot. Um, or maybe use Christian cliches that have just kind of been drained of all their, their meaning and their, 
their purpose. Or another way we take God's name at a deeper level is just we become careless in how we do worship. And we call, we're, we're called to call out to him, and so we're careless. And God's name is trivialized. Something that is meant to be weighty is treated with weightlessness. So the whole goal of the command is to get us to a point where we genuinely and, and fully say, hallowed be thy name. The deepest desire of my soul is to honor your name. Because the, the, the power and the beauty is that he gives us his name, and it's what then reshapes and can reconstitute our name. You know, the name of the Lord is placed upon us, and then we bear it, and then that becomes who we are. Have you ever noticed, especially in the Old Testament, how powerful it is? Whenever God wants to change somebody, he changes their name. But when he does, he starts out with his name. I am the Lord God Almighty. You shall no longer be Abram, but now Abraham. Because I am the Lord God Almighty. You will be. I am. You will be the father to many nations and the bearer of my promises. And your wife will no longer be called Sarai, but Sarah. She will be this mother. I am. Because I am, now you will be. And in Revelation, the beautiful thing is that his name gets put upon us, and then the name gets whispered into our ear that tells us who we truly are. His name written on our foreheads and defines who we are. So we live in light of his glorious name because of who he is. Now I am. He is the Lamb of God, the resurrection and the life, the Lord of lords, the man of sorrows, the head of the church, the faithful and true witness, the door, the living water, the bread of life, the alpha, the omega, the true and living vine, the holy one of Israel. He is these things. And with every one of those, because he is, then we are. When we were going through the Gospel of John, I wanted to take a series and break and just look at the seven great I am's in gospel, the Gospel of John and say, because he is, that now means we are. He is the good shepherd, the chief cornerstone. Because he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, I now will fear no evil. Because he is the great I am, I now will fear no change. Because he is the author and the finisher of our faith, I now can rest in him, trusting that he who began a good work will be faithful to bring it to completion. Because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the Alpha and the Omega, I will bow down to him and not try to boss him around. Because he is the Prince of Peace, I will trust him and I will rest in him and I will labor to spread that peace and not dissension because he is the resurrection and the life. I will fear nothing. I will fear no death because now he is this. It is just a doorway to bring me into the presence of my faithful Savior. And to live is now Christ. And to die is gain because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. My guilt is gone because he is the high priest who touches and cleanses his people. I bear no shame and I can sing no guilt, no shame. This new life that he gives, he is the great prophet whose light scatters the darkness of ignorance and error and enlightens 
the mind. He is the great king whose power breaks the bondage of sin and sends tyranny so I now can live triumphantly. He is the bridegroom of his people, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the day spring from on high. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And this name is too precious, too glorious, too majestic to be trifled with or treated as if it's just any other name. We have 10,000 reasons to bless his holy name. So that's why we love it. And under the old covenant, the name dwelt on the temple because that was the place that he chose for his name to dwell. But now under the new covenant, his name is placed upon his people. And whenever two or more of them gathered, there he is he with them because of the presence and the power of his name. So every week here at Trinity, we come to the table because the table is our weekly reminder of what he has done for us and who we are in the light of it. And it's one of the great blessings and gifts that uh, he gives to us. The bread symbolizes his body that's broken so we can internalize the body and then be made whole again. And one of his names is this great physician, and it tells us this is how he uh, heals. Because he is a great physician, I can be made whole again. And it's his broken bodies that that promise. And his blood represents the shed blood for the forgiveness of sins, because that ultimately is what's separating us from us and God and bringing in all of the broken dysfunction that we see everywhere. And this is the first step in the remedy and the restoration so here at Trinity, we'll have four stations, two in the front, two in the back, and one in the back will be gluten-free. And the way we do, you just come and you take the bread and you dip. And uh, once we're in place, and I'll pray, and then when we're done praying and we're in place, you come. So Lord, we thank you for the gift of your name. So we ask that you help us not to treat it as trite or trivial, but to know it and to love it, and that we would know its, its power. And we would know the precious fulfillment of all of your promises are fulfilled in the great name of your son, Jesus. And at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And there's no other name in heaven and earth in which we can be saved. So help us to know and to love that name. So I pray for everyone who's coming there this morning. We all have so many manifold needs where we need your grace. And you have promised that we can come boldly to your throne of grace and receive the help in our time of need. So whatever is needed, we pray that you provide it through the power of your name. In your name I pray, amen.